Chapter 2 of Faulkner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Faulkner by Mary Shelley. Chapter 2. It was to Mrs. Baker's credit that she did not attempt to investigate the affairs of her hapless lodger till after the funeral. A purse containing twelve guineas, which she found on her table, served indeed to satisfy her that she would be no immediate loser. However, as soon as the sod covered the gentle form of the unfortunate lady, she proceeded to examine her papers. The first that presented itself was the unfinished letter which Mrs. Robbie was engaged in writing at the time of her death. This promised information, and Mrs. Baker read it with eagerness. It was as follows. My dearest friend, a newspaper has just informed me that you are returned to England, while I still believed you to be, I know not where, on the continent. Dearest girl, it is long since I have written, for I have been too sad, too uncertain about your movements, and too unwilling to cloud your happiness by forcing you to remember one so miserable. My beloved friend, my schoolfellow, my benefactress, you will grieve to hear of my misfortunes, and it is selfish in me, even now, to intrude upon you with the tale, but under heaven I have no hope except in my generous, my warm-hearted Althea. Perhaps you have already heard of my disaster, and are aware that death has robbed me of the happiness which, under your kind fosterage, I had acquired and enjoyed." He is dead, who was my all in this world, and but for one tie I should bless the day when I might be permitted to rest for ever beside him. I often wonder, dear Althea, at the heedlessness and want of foresight with which I entered life, doomed through poverty and my orphan state, to earn my bread as a governess, my entrance on that irksome task was only delayed by my visit to you then under your dear roof i saw and was beloved by edwin and his entreaties and your encouragement permitted my trembling heart to dream of to possess happiness timidity of character made me shrink from my career diffidence never allowed me to suppose that any one would interest themselves enough in me to raise the poor trembler from the ground to shelter and protect her and to this kind of despondency rendered edwin's love a new glorious and divine joy yet when i thought of his parents i trembled i could not bear to enter a family where i was to be regarded as an unwelcome intruder yet edwin was already an outcast already father and brothers every relation had disowned him and he like i was alone and you althea how fondly how sweetly did you encourage me making that appear my duty which was the fulfilment of my wildest dreams of joy surely no being ever felt friendship as you have done sympathizing even in the untold secrets of a timid heart enjoying the happiness that you conferred with an ardour few can feel even for themselves your transports of delight when you saw me through your means blessed touched me with a gratitude that can never die and do i show this by asking now for your pity and saddening you by my grief pardon me sweet friend and do not wonder that this thought has long delayed my letter we were happy poor but content poverty was no evil to me 
and Edwin supported every privation as if he had never been accustomed to luxury. The spirit that had caused him to shake off the shackles his bigoted family threw over him animated him to exertions beyond his strength. He had chosen for himself. He wished to prove that his choice was good. I do not allude to our marriage, but to his desertion of the family religion and determination to follow a career not permitted by the policy of his relations to a younger son. He was called to the bar. He toiled incessantly. He was ambitious, and his talents gave every promise of success. He is gone, gone forever. I have lost the noblest, wisest friend that ever breathed, most devoted lover and truest husband that ever blessed a woman. I write incoherently. You know what our life in London was, obscure but happy. The scant pittance allowed him seemed to me applied to suffice for all our wants. I only then knew of the wants of youth and health, which were love and sympathy. I had all this crowning to the brim my cup of life. The birth of our sweet child filled it to overflowing. Our dingy lodgings near the courts of law were a palace to me. I should have despised myself heartily could I have desired anything beyond what I possessed. I never did, nor did I fear its loss. I was grateful to heaven, and thus I fancied that I paid the debt of my unmeasured prosperity. Can I say what I felt when I marked Edwin's restless nights, flushed cheek and the cough that would not go away? These things I dare not dwell upon. My tears overflow. My heart beats to bursting. The fatal truth was at last declared. The fatal word consumption spoken change of air was all the hope held out we came here the churchyard near holds now all earthly that remains of him would that my dust were mingling with his yet i have a child my althea and you who are incomparable as a mother will feel that i ought not grieve so bitterly while this dear angel remains to me I know, indeed, that without her life would at once suspend all its functions. Why, then, is it that while she is with me I am not stronger, more heroic? For to keep her with me I must leave the indolence of my present life. I must earn the bread of both. I should not repine at this. I should not when I am better. But I am very ill and weak. And though each day I rise, resolving to exert myself, before the morning has passed away, I lie down exhausted, trembling, and faint. When I lost Edwin, I wrote to Mr. Rabby, acquainting him with the sad intelligence and asking for a maintenance for myself and my child. The family solicitor answered my letter. Edwin's conduct, had I was told, estranged his family from him, and they could only regard me as one encouraging his disobedience and apostasy. I had no claim on them. If my child were sent to them, and I would promise to abstain from all intercourse with her, she should be brought up with her cousins, and treated in all respects like one of the family. I answered this letter hastily and proudly. I declined their barbarous offer, and haughtily, and in a few words, relinquished every claim on their bounty, declaring my intention to support and bring up my child myself. This was foolishly done, I fear but I cannot regret it, even now. 
I cannot regret the impulse that made me disdain these unnatural and cruel relatives, or that led me to take my poor orphan to my heart with pride as being all my own. What had they done to merit such a treasure? How did they show themselves capable of replacing a fond and anxious mother? How many blooming girls have they sacrificed to their peculiar views? With what careless eyes they regard the sweet emotions of nature? Never shall my adored girl be made the victim of that loveless race. Do you remember our sweet child? She was lovely from her birth, and surely, if ever angel assumed an earthly vesture, it took a form like my darling. Her loveliness expresses only the beauty of her disposition, so young, yet so full of sensibility. Her temper is without a flaw, and her intelligence transcends her age. You will not laugh at me for my maternal enthusiasm, nor will you wonder at it. Her endearing caresses, her cherub smiles, the silver accents of her infantine voice fill me with trembling rapture. Is she not too good for this bad world? I fear it. I fear to lose her. I fear to die and to leave her. Yet if I should, will you not cherish? Will you not be a mother to her? I may be presumptuous, but if I were to die even now, I should die in the belief that I left my child another mother in you." The letter broke off here, and these were the last words of the unfortunate writer. It contained a sad but too common story of the hard-heartedness of the wealthy and the misery endured by the children of the high-born. Blood is not water, it is said, but gold with them is dearer far than the ties of nature, to keep and augment their possessions being the aim and end of their lives, the existence and more especially the happiness of their children appears to them a consideration at once trivial and impertinent when it would compete with family views and family greatness to this common and iniquitous feeling these luckless beings were sacrificed they had endured the worst and could be injured no more but their orphan child was a living victim less thought of than the progeny of the meanest animal which might serve to augment their possessions Mrs. Baker felt some complacency on reading this letter. With the common English respect for wealth and rank, she was glad to find that her humble roof had sheltered a man who was the son, she did not exactly know of whom, but of somebody who had younger sons and elder sons and possessed, through wealth, the power of behaving frightfully ill to a vast number of persons. There was a grandeur and dignity in the very idea but the good woman felt less satisfaction as she proceeded in her operations. No other letter or paper appeared to inform or to direct. Every letter had been destroyed, and the young pair had brought no papers or documents with them. She could not guess to whom the unfinished letter she held was addressed. All was darkness and ignorance. She was aghast. There was none to whom to apply, none to whom to send the orphan. In a more busy part of the world, an advertisement in the newspapers would have presented itself as a resource. But Treby was too much cut off from the rest of the world for its inhabitants to conceive so daring an idea. And Mrs. Baker, repining much at the burden fallen upon her, and fearful of the future, could imagine no means by which to discover the relations of the little orphan. 
and her only notion was to wait in hopes that some among them would at last make inquiries concerning her nearly a year had passed away and no one had appeared the unfortunate lady's purse was soon emptied and her watch with one or two trinkets of slight value disposed of the child was of small cost but still her sordid protectress harped perpetually on her ill luck she had a family of her own and plenty of mouths to feed missy was but little but she would get bigger though for that matter it was worse now as she wanted more taking care of besides she was getting quite a disgrace her bonnet was so shabby and her shoes worn out and how could she afford to buy others for one who was not a bit of her flesh and blood to the evident hurt of her own children it was bad enough now but by and by she saw nothing but the parish though missy was born for better than that and her poor mamma would turn in her grave at the name of such a thing for her part she was to blame she feared and too generous but she would wait yet a little longer before it came to that for who could tell and here mrs baker's prudence dammed up the stream of her eloquence to no living ear did she dare trust her dream of the coach and six that might one day come for her little charge and the remuneration and presents that would be heaped upon her she actually saved the child's best frock though she had quite outgrown it that on such a day her appearance might do her honour but this was a secret she hid these vague but splendid images deep in her heart lest some neighbour might be seized with a noble emulation and through some artifice share in her dreamy gains it was these anticipations that prevented mrs baker from taking any decisive step injurious to her charge but they did not shed any rosy hues over her diurnal complaints they grew more peevish and frequent as time passed away and her visions attained no realization the little orphan grew meanwhile as a garden rose that accident had thrown amid briars and weeds blooming with alien beauty and unfolding its soft petals and shedding its ambrosial odor beneath the airs of heaven unharmed by its strange position lovely as a day of paradise which by some strange chance visits this nether world to gladden every heart she charmed even her selfish protectress and despite her shabby attire her cherub smiles the free and noble steps which her tiny feet could take even now and the music of her voice rendered her the object of respect and admiration as well as love to the whole village the loss of her father had acquainted the poor child with death her mother had explained the awful mystery as well as she could to her infantine intellects and indulging in her own womanish and tender fancies had often spoke of the dead as hovering over and watching around his loved ones even in the new state of existence to which he had been called yet she wept as she spoke he, he is happy she exclaimed but he is not here why did he leave us ah why desert those who loved him so well who need him so dearly how forlorn and cast away are we without him these scenes made a deep impression upon the sensitive child and when her mother died too and was carried away and placed in the cold earth beside her husband the orphan would sit for hours by the graves now fancying that her mother must soon return now exclaiming why are you gone away come dear mamma come back come quickly 
Young as she was, it was no wonder that such thoughts were familiar to her. The minds of children are often as intelligent as those of persons of mature age, and differ only by containing fewer ideas, but these had so often been presented to her, and she so fixed her little heart on the idea that her mother was watching over her, that at last it became a part of her religion to visit every evening the two graves, and saying her prayers near them, to believe that her mother's spirit, which was obscurely associated with her mortal remains reposing below, listened to and blessed her on that spot. At other times, neglected as she was, and left to wander at will, she conned her lesson, as she had been accustomed at her mother's feet beside her grave. She took her picture-books there, and even her playthings. The villagers were affected by her childish notion of being with Mama and Missy became something of an angel in their eyes, so that no one interfered with her visits or tried to explain away her fancies. She was the nursling of love and nature, but the human hearts which could have felt the greatest tenderness for her beat no longer and had become clods of the soil, borne round in earth's diurnal course with rocks and stones and trees. There was no knee on which she could playfully climb, no neck round which she could fondly hang, no parent's cheek on which to print her happy kisses. These two graves were all the relationship she knew upon the earth, and she would kiss the ground and the flowers, not one of which she plucked as she sat embracing the sod. Mama was everywhere around. Mama was there beneath, and still she could love and feel herself beloved. At other times she played gaily with her young companions in the village, and sometimes she fancied that she loved someone among them, and she made them presents of books and toys, the relics of happier days, for the desire to benefit, which springs up so naturally in a loving heart, was strong within her, even in that early age. But she never took any one with her in her churchyard visits. She needed none while she was with Mama. Once, indeed, a favorite kitten was carried to the sacred spot, and the little animal played amid the grass and flowers, and the child joined in its frolics. Her solitary gay laugh might be heard among the tombs. She did not think it solitary. Mama was there to smile on her as she sported with her tiny favorite. End of chapter 2